0: Cryptozoology and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult the beyond a top secret text podcast. This is Audible Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops. And the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. Written by David McGowan. Narrated by Bill Fike. Foreword by Nick Bryant Oscar Wilde said of art, Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. And author David McGowan has found that Wilde's quote is quite prophetic for the rock and roll scene that thrived in Laurel Canyon in the 1960s and 1970s. Weird scenes inside the canyon is McGowan taking a hammer to the icons and mythologies of 1960s counterculture, reducing them to dust, swept away by gusts of pomp, pretense, and even deceit. McGowan, though, isn't wielding his hammer with the zeal of an establishment conformist or neocon, but rather in the same forlorn spirit as Nietzsche declaring that God is dead. As a homegrown product of Los Angeles with an encyclopedic knowledge of the Southern California rock scene, McGowan appears to be essentially declaring that the gods of his youth are dead. Laurel Canyon was the fountainhead for the peace, love, and brown rice vibes that overflowed America's airwaves as the Vietnam War raged. But lurking beneath its tie dyed and florid veneer was an exquisite darkness of drugs, unbridled debauchery, full tilt depravity, and shocking carnage. When readers of this book are delivered to Laurel Canyon's blood drenched tapestry, of murder and mayhem, they will have to decide whether or not those sinister synchronicities are uncanny coincidences, conspiracies, or perhaps a kaleidoscopic blending of both. Sprinkled throughout these pages is the ominous specter of the military intelligence complex, and perched quite literally atop Laurel Canyon was the top secret Lookout Mountain Laboratory. Which seems to be McGowan's grand metaphor for Dr. Strangelove, having a bird's-eye view of the nascent hippie movement, treating it as though it were a petri dish brimming with a lethal biological weapon that could be unleashed in meticulously monitored increments. Indeed, many of Laurel Canyon's rock and roll idols had former incarnations steeped in the world of military intelligence operations, Jim Morrison, a.k.a. the Lizard King, was one such example. Mr. Mojo Rison didn't much like to talk about his parents and was even known to tell reporters that his parents were dead. But as it turns out, Lizard King Sr. was not only alive and well, he just happened to be the commander of the U.S. warships that allegedly came under attack by North Vietnamese torpedo boats in the Gulf of Tonkin, sparking America's napalm-fueled bloodbath in Vietnam. Frank Zappa, another major mover and shaker of the Laurel Canyon scene, was certainly the raddest of the rad, so surely he couldn't have had any connections to the military intelligence complex, right? Not exactly. According to various accounts collected by McGowan, Zappa was a pro-military autocrat, who didn't really resonate with the counterculture's peace and love vibe. Like the Lizard King's dad, Zappa Sr. was a cog in the intelligence community's dark machinations. Francis Zappa was a chemical warfare specialist with a top security clearance at Edgewood Arsenal near Baltimore, Maryland. Some readers might recognize Edgewood as the location of ominous mind-control experiments conducted by the CIA under the rubric of M.K. Ultra. Guilt by familial association has the potential to be an ill-fated formula for speculation, but McGowan relates accounts of Laurel Canyon luminaries whose own hands were possibly awash in the blood of the military intelligence complex. Consider, for example... Papa John Phillips, who penned the smash hit San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair, imploring thousands of runaways to make Bacchanalist pilgrimages to the city by the bay. The son of a Marine Corps captain, Phillips was among the more prominent fixtures of Laurel Canyon, who had a particularly interesting interrelationship with the military machine. Rock superstar Stephen Stills was the co-founder of two Laurel Canyon dynamos, Buffalo Springfield, and, of course, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Surely then hippie icon Stills couldn't possibly be enmeshed in the military intelligence complex? Maybe, maybe not. The progeny of yet another military family— Stills spent chunks of his childhood in El Salvador, Costa Rica, and Panama, where the U.S. has a history of spreading a genocidal form of democracy. And McGowan has sifted through accounts of Still's actually confessing to running around the jungles of Vietnam in the early 1960s, anecdotes generally dismissed, as the author notes, as drug-fueled delusions. Tales of drugs, unbridled debauchery, and full-tilt depravity are often populated by ethical eunuchs whose elite deviance yields to particularly malignant appetites, and the people calling Laurel Canyon home were no exception. McGowan introduces us to aging beatnik Vito Policus and his freaks, a dance troupe of Dionysian goddesses who accompanied Vito to the L.A. nightclubs where the fledgling Laurel Canyon bands were playing their early gigs. In addition to saturating the dance floors with sultry young nubiles for emerging bands, Vito is also a purveyor of teenage girls for the up-and-coming rockers. McGowan also comments on Vito's swift exodus to Haiti, for reasons explained herein. Vito Palika certainly isn't a household name. But he was far from being a fringe player on the Laurel Canyon scene, where he and his freaks mingled freely with rock and roll's burgeoning royalty. McGowan collects anecdotes suggesting that Vito may have played a key role in the formation and early success of the Birds, though his name is conspicuously absent from the autobiographical tome of Birds co founder David Crosby. We also find Vito in a string of low-budget films and in a cameo appearance on one of Rock's first concept albums, Zappa's Freak Out. Vito's parental skills, however, left a lot to be desired as evinced by the very mysterious and bizarre death of his young son, Godo. Further excavating the idolatry of his youth, McGowan encounters Laurel Canyon fixture Billy Breyers, a male madam, and gay porn entrepreneur. Breyers was investigated for trafficking child pornography in the 1970s, whereupon his stable of male hustlers began coughing up the names of frequent flyers at his bordello, the most notable among them being super freak G-Man J. Edgar Hoover and partner Clyde Tolson. The 1960s was a revolutionary epoch, not only in music, but also in Hollywood. And McGowan discusses the symbiosis between the Laurel Canyon music scene and Hollywood's Young Turks, with the box office phenomenon Easy Rider providing a salient nexus between Laurel Canyon rockers and Hollywood upstarts. Many of those upstarts, including Warren Beatty, Peter and Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Candace Bergen, Marlon Brando, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, Peter Lawford, Dennis Hopper, Ryan O'Neill, Mia Farrow, Peter Sellers, and Zsa Zsa Gabor were among Papa John and Mama Michelle Phillips' circle of friends. Also making the rounds in Laurel Canyon was America's favorite psychopath, Charles Manson and Charlie and his family weren't just a peripheral flock of craze killers among the Laurel Canyon sovereigns. To the contrary, the family mingled with many of the Canyon's rock stars. Manson even laid down tracks in Brian Wilson's home studio, stunning the likes of Neil Young. "'He had this kind of music that nobody else was doing,' said Neil of Charlie. "'I thought he really had something crazy, something great. "'He was like a living poet.' Charlie also impressed Terry Melcher, the Byrd's first producer, and a major force in sculpting the Laurel Canyon music scene. Melcher also recorded Manson, finding him to be a much more amicable character than David Crosby. Manson's homicidal lieutenant, Bobby Bozale also had some impressive moves as a guitarist and an occultist. Beausoleil played in a number of forgotten bands that had an occult topspin, one of which even opened for Buffalo Springfield. Bobby eventually landed a gig as a rhythm guitarist for the grassroots, which later transmuted into the Laurel Canyon band Love. McGowan also touches on the grisly Four on the Floor, or Wonderland Murders which left notorious drug dealer Ron Lonious and three of his gang bludgeoned to death on the floor of a house on Laurel Canyon's Wonderland Avenue. Lonious dealt drugs to Laurel Canyon's aristocracy, as well as to porn star John Holmes, then in the twilight of his career. Holmes also befriended L.A. crime boss, club owner Eddie Nash, who he then betrayed with fatal consequences. Truth be told, the Manson and Wonderland murders were merely spatters on Laurel Canyon's blood-drenched tapestry. In the pages of this fascinating book, McGowan chronicles tale after tale of suicide and murder, while delivering readers to a web of sinister synchronicities. Ultimately, it is up to the reader to decide whether Laurel Canyon, in its heyday... Was the counterculture haven portrayed by other chroniclers of the era, or whether it was the epicenter of intrigues whose ripple effects are like the aftershock of a nuclear bomb? Nick Bryant, July 29, 2013. Preface It began innocently enough. In my normal, everyday life, I spend a fair amount of time researching corruption and criminality in the realms of politics and law enforcement. Much of that research has taken me down some very dark and twisted paths. But this was going to be different. I was, after all, going to be vacationing in a lush, tropical paradise, and I really just wanted to turn my brain off for a couple weeks and forget about all of that. Not long before this much-anticipated break from reality, my eldest daughter had given me a copy of Michael Walker's Laurel Canyon, the inside story of rock and roll's legendary neighborhood, which chronicles the Los Angeles music scene of the late 1960s through the 1970s. It seemed like the ideal escapist entertainment that would undoubtedly conjure up many fond memories of the music that provided the soundtrack to my formative years. What could be further removed from my usual reading material? As is often the case, though, things didn't work out exactly as planned. Alarm bells started going off in my head soon after arriving at my destination and diving into the book what was this about secret underground tunnels connecting some of the iconic Laurel Canyon properties and what about all those mysterious fires that wiped away the homes of a number of prominent singers and musicians and why were there so many violent deaths so closely associated with a scene that was supposed to be all about peace and love and what of Walker's throwaway mention of a secret, fortified military installation sitting right smack dab in the middle of hippiedom? And why did at least a few of America's new minstrels seem to come from career military families and from the world of covert intelligence operations? And how exactly do the casual allusions to pedophilia fit into this increasingly curious scene? While Walker had done a decent job of telling the Laurel Canyon story from a mainstream perspective, there seemed to be a much more intriguing story hidden in the details that he tended to cast aside as interesting but largely meaningless incongruities. Before I was even halfway through my sorely needed rest and relaxation time, I was champing at the bit to get back home and dig deeper into this story. And immediately upon my return, I began devouring everything I could find that had been written on the subject. Although I am regarded by many people as a conspiracy theorist, which is more often than not utilized as a pejorative term, I do all of my research through very mainstream channels. I'm a big believer in the notion that the truth is out there, but don't expect it to be delivered to you in a tidy package by any mainstream media outlets. Finding it involves assembling a jigsaw puzzle of sorts, with the goal being to gather up all the bits and pieces of information that other writers tend to present as throwaway facts and or interesting anomalies. Sometimes those bits and pieces end up being no more than interesting anomalies. But past experience has taught me that if those divergent facts are properly assembled, a new picture often begins to emerge that is strikingly at odds with what is widely accepted as our consensus reality. At the end of the day, it's really all about pattern recognition. If, for example, just a few prominent Laurel Canyon musicians happen to come from military intelligence families, then we could probably safely write that off as an interesting but largely inconsequential aberration. But if an uncanny number of the leading lights of the Laurel Canyon scene grew up in such an environment, then that is clearly a meaningful pattern. And if a few of the new breed of stars happen to have violent death intrude upon their personal lives— then that would be a tragic but largely inconsequential fact. But when it becomes clear that violent deaths surrounding the entire scene, with whole families at times dying off under suspicious circumstances, then that again is a distinguishing pattern, and one that has been all but ignored by other chroniclers of the scene. There is little doubt in my mind that this book will not be warmly received by all readers. In our celebrity-driven culture, calling into question the character and motivations of so many widely admired and respected figures from the entertainment community is never a good way to win popularity contests. And when those revered figures are overwhelmingly viewed as icons of various leftist causes... It is definitely not the way to win fans among those who consider themselves to be liberals, progressives, or leftists. But while my sympathies lie solidly in the leftward flanks of the political spectrum, there are no sacred cows in either this book or in any of my past work. I really have no agenda other than to seek out unspoken truths and better my own understanding of the world we live in. I have no political party affiliations and have never been associated in any way with any governmental or quasi-governmental entities. And for the record, I was not born into the world of military intelligence operations. My rather uneventful childhood was spent in a quiet slice of suburbia with two public school teachers as parents. I've never claimed to be in possession of any inside information or to have access to any highly placed confidential sources. My research and the views expressed in my work are very much my own. While almost all of my past and present literary contributions are generally regarded as being quite controversial, the individual facts contained in this volume are not really controversial at all all of them as previously noted have been mined from very respectable mainstream sources it is only the way that i have presented those facts in other words the way that i have chosen to assemble the puzzle that makes them controversial There will undoubtedly be those who will stridently claim that I have carefully cherry-picked my facts to paint an unnecessarily dark portrait of many of the iconic figures who make up the cast of this story. Anyone, so the argument goes, could be made to look bad through such a journalistic approach. I would strongly disagree with that assessment, however. Such criticisms, in my opinion, completely miss the point of the book— which is that when stripped of the usual spin that accompanies them, and when assembled so that they become part of overriding patterns, these anomalous facts reveal truths that would not otherwise be visible. Another criticism I anticipate is that I did not go out and attempt to speak directly to the people who made up the scene. True enough, but the primary reason for that is that there is very little chance that the aging rock stars and their handlers would have wanted anything to do with me. Other chroniclers of the era have gained access to those involved, but that access has come, or so it appears to me, with a steep price in journalistic integrity. The inevitable result is what amounts to puff pieces with a mind-numbing sameness— with the same tired anecdotal stories uncritically told over and over again in the very same way, even when those stories can't possibly be true. I have no desire to serve as a publicist for the estates of Jim Morrison, John Phillips, or Frank Zappa, nor do I have any interest in filling the pages of this book with the same apocryphal tales told by other scribes. There are any number of literary offerings listed in the bibliography that will provide that type of a reading experience. My goal here is to break new ground and open readers' minds to the possibility that other writers may have left out some of the most important elements of this underreported tale. The story of the scene that played out in Laurel Canyon from the mid-1960s through the end of the 1970s is an endlessly fascinating one it wasn't until fairly recently that the mainstream version of the tale was belatedly told and even now it remains a story unknown by most of those who were not a part of it virtually everyone has heard of the haight ashbury scene up north in san francisco but even most native Angelenos remain ignorant of the even larger music and counterculture scene that played out in the Hollywood Hills. It seems a bit odd that nearly a full half-century after the fact, the hate is almost universally regarded as the birthplace of hippies and flower children, despite the fact that the Laurel Canyon scene preceded and largely inspired what became a parallel scene up north why is it that the hate has been thrust into the spotlight for so long while so little attention has been paid to the scene that spawned it? Perhaps the Laurel Canyon scene was hiding so many dark secrets that it was better to just let it lie undisturbed. And perhaps it is now time to shine a light into some of the darker corners of the canyon to see what kind of skeletons might be hiding there. Chapter 1, Village of the Damned, by way of an introduction. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Join me now, if you have the time, as we take a stroll down memory lane to a time nearly five decades ago, a time when America last had uniformed ground troops fighting a sustained and bloody battle. To impose some decidedly Orwellian democracy on a sovereign nation. It is the first week of August 1964, and U.S. warships under the command of U.S. Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison have allegedly come under attack while patrolling Vietnam's Tonkin Gulf. This event, subsequently dubbed the Tonkin Gulf Incident, will result in the immediate passing by the U.S. Congress of the obviously pre-drafted Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which will in turn quickly lead to America's deep immersion into the bloody Vietnam quagmire. Before it is over, well over 50,000 American bodies, along with literally millions of Southeast Asian bodies, will litter the battlefields of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. For the record, the Tonkin Gulf incident appears to differ somewhat from other alleged provocations that have driven this country to war. This was not, as we have seen so many times before, a false flag operation, which is to say an operation that involves Uncle Sam attacking himself and then pointing an accusatory finger at someone else. It was also not, as we have also seen on more than one occasion, an attack that was quite deliberately provoked. No, what the Tonkin Gulf incident actually was, as it turns out, is an attack that never took place at all. The entire incident, as has been all but officially acknowledged, was spun from whole cloth. It is quite possible, however, that the intent was to provoke a defensive response which could have then been cast as an unprovoked attack on U.S. ships. The ships in question were on an intelligence mission and were operating in a decidedly provocative manner. It is quite possible that when Vietnamese forces failed to respond as anticipated, Uncle Sam decided to just pretend as though they had Nevertheless, by early February 1965, the U.S. will, without a declaration of war and with no valid reason to wage one, begin indiscriminately bombing North Vietnam. By March of that same year, the infamous Operation Rolling Thunder will commence. Over the course of the next three and a half years, millions of tons of bombs, missiles, rockets, (coughs) incendiary devices and chemical warfare agents will be dumped on the people of Vietnam in what can only be described as one of the worst crimes against humanity ever perpetrated on this planet. Also in March of 1965, the first uniformed U.S. soldier officially sets foot on Vietnamese soil. Although special forces units masquerading as advisors and trainers have been there for at least four years and Likely much longer. By April 1965, fully 25,000 uniformed American kids, most still teenagers barely out of high school, are slogging through the rice paddies of Vietnam. By the end of the year, U.S. troop strength will have surged to 200,000. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the world in those early months of 1965, A new scene is just beginning to take shape in the city of Los Angeles. In a geographically and socially isolated community known as Laurel Canyon, a heavily wooded, rustic, serene, yet vaguely ominous slice of L.A. nestled in the hills that separate the Los Angeles basin from the San Fernando Valley. Musicians, singers, and songwriters suddenly begin to gather as though summoned there by some unseen Pied Piper. Within months, the hippie flower child movement is begotten there, along with the new style of music that will provide the soundtrack for the tumultuous second half of the 1960s. Beginning in the mid-1960s and carrying through the decade of the 1970s, an uncanny number of rock music superstars will emerge from Laurel Canyon. The first to drop an album is The Birds, whose biggest star will prove to be David Crosby. The band's debut effort, Mr. Tambourine Man, is released on the summer solstice of 1965. It will quickly be followed by releases from the John Phillips-led Mamas and the Papas, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears. January 1966, Love with Arthur Lee, Love, May 1966, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, Freak Out, June 1966, Buffalo Springfield, featuring Stephen Stills and Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield, October 1966, and The Doors, The Doors, January 1967. One of the earliest on the Laurel Canyon Sunset Strip scene is Jim Morrison, the enigmatic lead singer of the Doors. Jim will quickly become one of the most iconic, controversial, critically acclaimed, and influential figures to take up residence in Laurel Canyon. Curiously enough, though, the self-proclaimed Lizard King has another claim to fame as well, albeit one that none of his numerous chroniclers will feel is of much relevance to his career and possible untimely death. He is the son, as it happens, of the aforementioned Admiral George Stephen Morrison. And so it is that even while the father is actively conspiring to fabricate an incident that will be used to massively accelerate an illegal war, the son is positioning himself to become an icon of the hippie anti-war crowd. Nothing usual about that, I suppose. It is, you know, a small world and all. And it is not as if Jim Morrison's story is in any way unique. During the early years of its heyday, Laurel Canyon's father figure is the rather eccentric personality known as Frank Zappa, Though he and his various mothers of invention line ups will never attain the commercial success of the band headed by the Admiral Son, Frank will be a hugely influential figure among his contemporaries. Ensconced in an abode dubbed the Log Cabin, which sat right in the heart of Laurel Canyon at the crossroads of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue. Zappa will play host of virtually every musician who passes through the canyon in the mid to late 1960s. He will also discover and sign numerous acts to his various Laurel Canyon-based record labels. Many of these acts will be rather bizarre and somewhat obscure characters. Think Captain Beefheart and Larry Wildman Fisher. But some of them, such as psychedelic rocker Coombe shock rocker Alice Cooper, will go on to superstardom. Zappa, along with certain members of his sizable entourage, the log cabin was run as an early commune with numerous hangers-on, occupying various rooms in the main house and the guest house, as well as the peculiar caves and tunnels lacing the grounds of the home. Far from the quaint homestead, the name seems to imply, the log cabin was a cavernous five-level home that featured a 2,000-plus square foot living room with three massive chandeliers and an enormous floor-to-ceiling stone fireplace. will also be instrumental in introducing the look and attitude that will define the hippie counterculture although the Zappa crew prefers the label freak. Nevertheless, Zappa will never really make a secret of the fact that he has nothing but contempt for the hippie culture that he will help create and with which he will surround himself. Given that Zappa is, by various accounts, a pro-military, rigidly authoritarian control freak, it is perhaps unsurprising that he will not feel a kinship with the youth movement that he will help nurture. And it is probably safe to say that Frank's dad also would have had little regard for the youth culture of the 1960s, given that Francis Zappa was, in case you were wondering, a chemical warfare specialist assigned to, where else? The Edgewood Arsenal near Baltimore, Maryland. Edgewood is, of course, the longtime home of America's chemical warfare program, as well as a facility frequently cited as being deeply enmeshed in MK Ultra operations. Curiously enough, Frank Zappa literally grew up at the Edgewood Arsenal, having lived the first seven years of his life in military housing on the grounds of the facility. The family later moved to Lancaster, California, near Edwards Air Force Base, where Francis Zappa continued to busy himself doing classified work for the military intelligence complex. His son, meanwhile, prepped himself to become an icon of the peace and love crowd. Again, nothing unusual about that, I suppose. Zappa's manager is a shadowy character by the name of Herb Cohen, who had come out of L.A. from the Bronx with his brother Mutt just before the music and club scene began heating up. Cohen, a former U.S. Marine, had spent a few years traveling the world before his arrival on the Laurel Canyon scene. Those travels, curiously, had taken him to the Congo in 1961, at the very time that leftist Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba was being tortured and killed by our very own CIA. Not to worry, though, according to one of Zappa's biographers, Cohen wasn't in the Congo on some kind of nefarious intelligence mission. No, he was there, on the contrary, to supply arms to Lumumba in defiance of the CIA. Because, you know, that is the kind of thing that globetrotting ex-marines did in those days— as we'll see soon enough when we take a look at another Laurel Canyon luminary. Making up the other half of Laurel Canyon's first family is Frank's wife, Gail Zappa, known formally as Adelaide Sloatman. Gail hails from a long line of career naval officers, including her father, who spent his life working on classified nuclear weapons research for the U.S. Navy. Gail herself once worked as a secretary for the Office of Naval Research and Development. She also once told an interviewer that she had heard voices all her life. Many years before their nearly simultaneous arrival in Laurel Canyon, Gail had attended a naval kindergarten class with Mr. Mojo Risen himself, Jim Morrison. It is claimed that as children... Gail once hit Jim over the head with a hammer. The very same Jim Morrison had later attended the same Alexandria Virginia High School as two other future Laurel Canyon luminaries, John Phillips and Cass Elliot. Papa John Phillips, more so than probably any of the other illustrious residents of Laurel Canyon, will play a major role in spreading the emerging youth counterculture across America. His contribution will be twofold. First, he will co-organize the famed Monterey Pop Festival, which, through unprecedented media exposure, will give mainstream America its first real look at the music and fashions of the nascent hippie movement. Second, Phillips will pen an insipid song known as San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair, which will quickly rise to the top of the charts. Along with the Monterey Pop Festival, the song will be instrumental in luring the disenfranchised, a preponderance of whom will be underage runaways, to San Francisco to create the hate-Ashbury phenomenon and the famed 1967 Summer of Love. Before arriving in Laurel Canyon and opening the doors of his home to the soon-to-be-famous, the already-famous, and the infamous, such as Charlie Manson, whose family also spent time at the log cabin and at the Laurel Canyon home of Mama Cass Elliot, which, in case you didn't know, sat right across the road from the Laurel Canyon home of Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frukowski. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. John Edmund Andrew Phillips was, shockingly enough, Yet another child of the military intelligence complex. The son of U.S. Marine Corps Captain Claude Andrew Phillips and a mother who claimed to have psychic and telekinetic powers, John attended a series of elite military prep schools in the Washington, D.C. area, culminating in an appointment to the prestigious U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. After leaving Annapolis, John married Susie Adams, a direct descendant of founding father John Adams. Susie's father, James Adams, Jr., had been involved in what Susie described as cloak-and-dagger stuff with the Air Force in Vienna, or what others like to call covert intelligence operations. Susie herself would later find employment at the Pentagon alongside John Phillips' older sister, Rosie, who dutifully reported to work at the complex for nearly 30 years. John's mother, Deanie Phillips, also worked for most of her life for the federal government in some unspecified capacity. And John's older brother, Tommy, was a battle-scarred former U.S. Marine who found work on the Alexandria police force as a cop, albeit one with a disciplinary record for exhibiting a violent streak when dealing with people of color. John Phillips, of course, though surrounded throughout his life by military intelligence personnel, did not involve himself in such matters, or so we are to believe. Before succeeding in his musical career, however, John did seem to find himself, quite innocently, of course, in some rather unusual places. One such place was Havana, Cuba, where Phillips arrived at the very height of the Cuban Revolution, For the record, Phillips has claimed that he went to Havana as nothing more than a concerned private citizen with the intention of, you're going to love this one, fighting for Castro. Because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of folks in those days traveled abroad to thwart CIA operations before taking up residence in Laurel Canyon and joining the hippie generation. During the two weeks or so that the Cuban Missile Crisis played out, A few years after Castro took power, Phillips found himself cooling his heels in Jacksonville, Florida, alongside the Mayport Naval Station. Anyway, let's move on to yet another of Laurel Canyon's earliest and brightest stars, Mr. Stephen Stills. Stills will have the distinction of being a founding member of two of Laurel Canyon's most acclaimed and beloved bands, Buffalo Springfield and, needless to say, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. In addition, Stills will pen perhaps the first and certainly one of the most enduring anthems of the 60s generation for what it's worth. The opening lines of which appear at the top of this chapter, Stills' follow-up single will be entitled Bluebird, which, coincidentally or not, happens to be the original code name assigned to the CIA's MK Ultra program. Before his arrival in Laurel Canyon, Stephen Stills was the product of yet another career military family. Raised partly in Texas, young Stephen spent large swaths of his childhood in El Salvador, Costa Rica, the Panama Canal Zone, and various other parts of Central America alongside his father, who was, we can be fairly certain, helping to spread democracy to the unwashed masses in that endearingly American way. As with the rest of our cast of characters, Stills was educated primarily at schools on military bases and at elite military academies. Among his contemporaries in Laurel Canyon, he was widely viewed as having an abrasive, authoritarian personality. Nothing unusual about any of that, of course, as we have already seen. There is, however, an even more curious aspect to the Stephen Still story. Stephen will later tell anyone who will sit and listen that he had served time for Uncle Sam in the jungles of Vietnam. These tales will be universally dismissed by chroniclers of the era as nothing more than drug-induced delusions, such a thing couldn't possibly be true, it will be claimed, since Stills arrived on the Laurel Canyon scene at the very time that the first uniformed troops began shipping out, and he remained in the public eye thereafter. And it will, of course, be quite true that Stephen Stills could not have served with uniformed ground troops in Vietnam. But what will be ignored is the undeniable fact that the U.S. had thousands of advisers, which is to say CIA special forces operatives, active in the country for a good many years before the arrival of the first official ground troops. What will also be ignored is that given his background, his age, and the timeline of events, Stephen Stills not only could indeed have seen action in Vietnam, he would seem to have been a prime candidate for such an assignment, after which, of course, he could rather quickly become, stop me if you've heard this one before, an icon of the peace generation. Another of those icons, and one of Laurel Canyon's most flamboyant residents, is a young man by the name of David Crosby, founding member of the seminal Laurel Canyon band The Birds, as well as, of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Crosby is, not surprisingly, the son of an Annapolis graduate and World War II military intelligence officer, Major Floyd Delafield Crosby. Like others in this story, Floyd Crosby spent much of his post-service time traveling the world. Those travels landed him in places like Haiti, he paid a visit in 1927, when the country just happened to be, coincidentally, of course, under military occupation by the U.S. Marines. One of the Marines doing that occupying was a guy that we had met earlier by the name of Captain Claude Andrew Phillips. But David Crosby is much more than just the son of Major Floyd Delafield Crosby, David Van Cortland Crosby, as it turns out, is a scion of the closely intertwined Van Cortland, Van Schuyler, and Van Rensselaer families. And while you're probably thinking, the Van Who families? I can assure you that if you plug those names in over at Wikipedia, you can spend a pretty fair amount of time reading up on the power wielded by this clan for the last, oh, two and a quarter centuries or so. Suffice it to say that the Crosby family tree includes a truly dizzying array of U.S. senators and congressmen, state senators and assemblymen, governors, mayors, judges, Supreme Court justices, revolutionary and Civil War generals, signers of the Declaration of Independence, and members of the Continental Congress it also includes i should hasten to add for those of you with a taste for such things more than a few high-ranking masons stephen van rensselaer the third for example reportedly served as grand master of masons for new york And if all that isn't impressive enough, according to the New England Genealogical Society, David Van Cortland Crosby is also a direct descendant of founding fathers and Federalist Papers authors Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. If there is, as many believe, a network of elite families that has shaped national and world events for a very long time, then it is probably safe to say that David Crosby is a bloodline member of that clan, which may explain, come to think of it, why his semen seems to be in such demand in certain circles. Because, if we're being honest here, it certainly can't be due to his looks or talent. If America had royalty, then David Crosby would probably be a duke or a prince or something similar. But other than that, he is just a normal, run-of-the-mill kind of guy who just happened to shine as one of Laurel Canyon's brightest stars, and who, I guess I should add, has a real fondness for guns, especially handguns, which he has maintained a sizable collection of for his entire life. According to those closest to him, it is a rare occasion when Mr. Crosby is not packing heat. John Phillips also owned, and sometimes carried, handguns. And according to Crosby himself, he has, on at least one occasion, discharged a firearm in anger at another human being. All of which made him, of course, an obvious choice for the flower children to rally around. Another shining star on the Laurel Canyon scene, just a few years later, will be singer-songwriter Jackson Brown, who is, are you getting as bored with this as I am? the product of a career military family. Brown's father was assigned to post-war reconstruction work in Germany, which very likely means that he was in the employ of the OSS, precursor to the CIA. As readers of my earlier work, Understanding the F Word, may recall, U.S. involvement in post-war reconstruction in Germany largely consisted of maintaining as much of the Nazi infrastructure as possible— while shielding war criminals from capture and prosecution. Against that backdrop, Jackson Brown was born in a military hospital in Heidelberg, Germany. Some two decades later, he emerged as, oh, never mind. Let's talk instead about three other Laurel Canyon vocalists who will rise to dizzying heights of fame and fortune. Jerry Beckley, Dan Peake... ...and Dewey Bennell. Individually, these three names are probably unknown to virtually all readers... ...but collectively, as the band America, the three will score huge hits in the early 70s... ...with such songs as Ventura Highway, A Horse With No Name, and The Wizard of Oz-themed The Tin Man. I guess I probably don't need to add here that all three of these lads were product of the military intelligence community... Beckley's dad was the commander of the now-defunct West Ryslip USAF base near London, England, a facility deeply immersed in intelligence operations. Bennell's and Peake's fathers were both career Air Force officers serving under Beckley's dad at West Ryslip, which is where the three boys first met. We could also, I suppose, discuss Mike Nesmith of the Monkees and Corey Wells of Three Dog Night, two more hugely successful Laurel Canyon bands, who both arrived in L.A. not long after serving time with the U.S. Air Force. Nesmith also inherited a family fortune estimated at $25 million. Graham Parsons, who will briefly replace David Crosby in The Birds before fronting the Flying Burrito Brothers, was the son of Major Cecil Ingram Coon Dog Connor II, a decorated military officer and bomber pilot who reportedly flew over fifty combat missions parsons was also an heir on his mother's side to the formidable snively family fortune Said to be the wealthiest family in the exclusive enclave of Winter Haven, Florida, the Snively family was the proud owner of Snively Groves, Incorporated, which reportedly owned as much as one-third of all the citrus groves in the state of Florida. And so it goes as one scrolls through the roster of Laurel Canyon superstars. What one finds, far often than not, are the sons and daughters of the military intelligence complex and the sons and daughters of extreme wealth and privilege. Oftentimes you'll find both rolled into one convenient package. Every once in a while, you will also stumble across a former child actor like Brandon DeWilde or monkey Mickey Dolans or eccentric prodigy Van Dyke Parks. You might also encounter some former mental patients such as James Taylor, who spent time in two different mental institutions in Massachusetts before hitting the Laurel Canyon scene, or Larry Wildman Fisher, who was institutionalized repeatedly during his teen years, once for attacking his mother with a knife, an act that was gleefully mocked by Zappa on the cover of Fisher's first album. Finally, you might find the offspring of an organized crime figure, like Warren Zevon, the son of William Stumpy Zivon, a lieutenant for infamous L.A. crime lord Mickey Cohen. All these folks gathered nearly simultaneously along the narrow winding roads of Laurel Canyon. They came from across the country, although the Washington, D.C. area was noticeably overrepresented, as well as from Canada and England, and in at least one case, all the way from Nazi Germany. They came even though, at the time, there was no music industry in Los Angeles. They came even though, at the time, there was no live music scene to speak of. They came even though, in retrospect, there was no discernible reason for them to do so. It would, of course, make sense these days for an aspiring musician to venture out to Los Angeles, but in those days, the centers of the music universe were Nashville, memphis and new york it wasn't the industry that drew the laurel canyon crowd you see but rather the laurel canyon crowd that transformed los angeles into the epicenter of the music industry to what then do we attribute this unprecedented gathering of future musical superstars in the hills above los angeles what was it that inspired them all to head out west Perhaps Neil Young said it best when he told an interviewer that he couldn't really say why he headed out to L.A. circa 1966. He and others were just going like lemmings. Chapter 2. Power to the People Call This a Counterculture? Everyone there had at one time or another been into Satanism or like myself, had dabbled around the edges for sexual kicks. Sammy Davis Jr., referring to the victims at 10050 Cielo Drive. In the previous chapter, we met a sampling of some of the most successful and influential rock music superstars who emerged from Laurel Canyon during its glory days. But these were, alas, more than just musicians and singers and songwriters who had come together in the canyon. They were destined to become the spokesmen and de facto leaders of a generation of disaffected youth. As Carl Gottlieb noted in David Crosby's co-written autobiography, the unprecedented mass appeal of the new rock and roll gave the singers a voice in public affairs. That, of course, makes it all the more curious that these icons were, to an overwhelming degree, the sons and daughters of the military intelligence complex, and the scions of families that have wielded vast wealth and power in this country for a very long time. It could, of course, be argued that there was nothing necessarily nefarious in the fact that so many of these icons of a past generation hailed from military intelligence families. Perhaps, it could be suggested, they had embarked on their chosen careers as a form of rebellion against the values of their parents. And that, I suppose, might be true in a couple of cases. But what are we to conclude from the fact that such an astonishing number of these folks, along with their girlfriends, wives, managers, etc., hail from a similar background. Are we to believe that the only kids from that era who had musical talent were the sons and daughters of Navy admirals, chemical warfare engineers, and Air Force intelligence officers? Or are they just the only ones who were signed to lucrative contracts and relentlessly promoted by their labels and the media? If these artists were rebelling against, rather than subtly promoting, the values of their parents, then why didn't they ever speak out against the people they were allegedly rebelling against? Why did Jim Morrison never denounce or even mention his father's key role in escalating one of America's bloodiest illegal wars? And why did Frank Zappa never pen a song exploring the horrors of chemical warfare? though he did pen a charming little ditty entitled Ritual Dance of the Child Killer. And which Mamas and the Papas song was it that laid waste to the values and actions of John Phillips' parents and in-laws? And in which interview exactly did David Crosby and Stephen Stills disown the family values that they were raised with? We will be taking a much closer look at these performers, as well as at many of their contemporaries, as we endeavor to determine how and why the youth counterculture of the 1960s was given birth. According to virtually all the accounts that I have read, this was essentially a spontaneous, organic response to the war in Southeast Asia and to the prevailing social conditions of the time. Conspiracy theorists, of course, have frequently opined that what began as a legitimate movement was at some point co-opted and undermined by intelligence operations such as Co Intel Pro. Entire books, for example, have been written examining how presumably virtuous musical artists were subjected to FBI harassment and or whacked by the CIA. Here we will, as you may have already ascertained, take a decidedly different approach. The question that we will be tackling is a more deeply troubling one. What if the musicians themselves and various other leaders and founders of the movement were every bit as much a part of the intelligence community as the people who were supposedly harassing them? What if, in other words, the entire youth culture of the 1960s was created not as a grassroots challenge to the status quo, but as a cynical exercise in discrediting and marginalizing the budding anti-war movement and creating a fake opposition that could be easily controlled and led astray? And what if the harassment these folks were subjected to was largely a stage-managed show designed to give the leaders of the counterculture some much-needed street cred. What if, in reality, they were pretty much all playing on the same team? I should probably mention here that, contrary to popular opinion, the hippie flower-child movement was not synonymous with the anti-war movement. As time passed, there was, to be sure, a fair amount of overlap between the two movements. And the mass media outlets, as is their wont, did their very best to portray the flower power generation as the torch bearers of the anti war movement. After all, a ragtag band of unwashed, drug fueled, long hairs sporting flowers and peace symbols was far easier to marginalize than, say, a bunch of respected college professors and their concerned students. The reality, however, is that the anti-war movement was already well underway before the first aspiring hippie arrived in Laurel Canyon. The first Vietnam War teach-in was held on the campus of the University of Michigan in March of 1965. The first organized walk on Washington occurred just a few weeks later. Needless to say, there were no hippies in attendance at either event. That problem would soon be rectified, and the anti-war crowd, those who were serious about ending the bloodshed in Vietnam anyway, would be none too appreciative. As Barry Miles has written in his coffee table book, "Hippy." There were some hippies involved in anti-war protests, particularly after the police riot in Chicago in 1968, when so many people got injured. But on the whole, the movement activists looked on hippies with disdain. Peter Coyote, narrating the documentary Hippies on the History Channel, added that, some on the left even theorized that the hippies were the end result of a plot by the CIA to neutralize the anti-war movement with LSD, turning potential protesters into self-absorbed navel gazers. An exasperated Abby Hoffman once described the scene as he remembered it thusly. There were all these activists, you know, Berkeley radicals, White Panthers, all trying to stop the war and change things for the better. Then we got flooded with all these flower children who were into drugs and sex. Where the hell did the hippies come from? As it turns out, they came, initially at least, from a rather private, isolated, largely self-contained neighborhood in Los Angeles known as Laurel Canyon. In contrast to the other canyons slicing through the Hollywood Hills, Laurel Canyon has its own market— The semi-famous Laurel Canyon Country Store, its own deli and cleaners, its own elementary school, the Wonderland School, its own boutique shops and salons, and in more recent years, its own celebrity rehab facility named, as you might have guessed, the Wonderland Center. During its heyday, the canyon even had its own management company, Lookout Management, to handle the talent. At one time, it even had its own newspaper. (laughs) One other thing that I should add here is that this has not been an easy line of research for me to conduct, primarily because I have been, for as long as I can remember, a huge fan of 1960s music and culture. Though I didn't come of age, so to speak, until the 1970s, I always felt as though I was cheated by being denied the opportunity to experience firsthand the era that I was so obviously meant to inhabit. During my high school and college years, while my peers were mostly into faceless corporate rock, think Journey, Foreigner, Kansas, Boston, etc., and perhaps worse yet, the twin horrors of new wave and disco music, I was faithfully spinning my Hendrix, Joplin, and Doors albums, which I still have in the original vinyl version, <coughs> while my color organ, remember those, competed with my black light and strobe light. I grew my hair long until well past the age when it should have been sheared off. I may have even strung beads across the doorway to my room, but it was possible that I am confusing my life with that of Greg Brady, who, as we all remember, once converted his dad's home office into a groovy bachelor pad. Anyway, one of the most difficult aspects of this journey that I have been on for the last 15 years or so has been watching so many of my former idols and mentors fall by the wayside as it became increasingly clear to me that people who I once thought were the good guys were in reality something entirely different. The first to fall, naturally enough, were the establishment figures, the politicians who I once quite foolishly looked up to as people who were fighting the good fight within the confines of the system to bring about real change. Though it now pains me to admit this, There was a time when I admired the likes of E. Gads, George McGovern, and Jimmy Carter, as well as California Paul's Tom Hayden and Jerry Brown. I even had high hopes, oh, so many years ago for—am I really admitting this in print?—Bill Clinton. Since I mentioned Jerry, Governor Moonbeam Brown, by the way, I must now digress just a bit. As luck would have it, Jerry Brown was, curiously enough, a long-time resident of a little place called Laurel Canyon. As readers of my previous work, Program to Kill, may recall, Brown lived on Wonderland Avenue, not too many doors down from 8763 Wonderland Avenue, the site of the infamous Four on the Floor Murders regarded by grizzled L.A. homicide detectives as the most bloody and brutal multiple murder in the city's very bloody history. As it turns out, the most bloody mass murder in L.A.'s history took place in one of the city's most serene, pastoral, and exclusive neighborhoods. And strangely enough, the case usually cited as the runner-up for the title of bloodiest crime scene, The murders of Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojtek Frakowski, and Abigail Folger at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, just a couple miles to the west of Laurel Canyon, had deep ties to the Laurel Canyon scene as well. As previously mentioned, victims Folger and Frakowski lived in Laurel Canyon at 2774 Woodstock Road, in a rented home right across the road from a favored gathering spot for Laurel Canyon royalty. Many of the regular visitors to Cass Elliot's home, including a number of shady drug dealers, were also regular visitors to the Folger-Frakowski home. Frakowski's son, by the way, was stabbed to death on June 6, 1999, 30 years after his father met the same fate. Victim J. Sebring's acclaimed hair salon sat right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, just below the Sunset Strip, and it was Sebring, alas, who was credited with sculpting Jim Morrison's famous mane. One of the investors in his Sebring International business venture was none other than Mr. John Phillips. Sharon Tate was also well known in Laurel Canyon, where she was a frequent visitor to the homes of friends like John Phillips, Cass Elliot, and Abigail Folger. And when she wasn't in Laurel Canyon, many of the canyon regulars, both famous and infamous, made themselves at home at her place on Cielo Drive. Canyonite Van Dyke Parks, for example, dropped by for a visit on the very day of the murders. And Denny Doherty, the other papa in The Mamas and the Papas, has claimed that he and John Phillips were invited to the Cielo Drive home on the night of the murders, but, as luck would have it, they never made it over. Similarly, Chuck Negron of Three Dog Night, a regular visitor to the Wonderland Death House, had set up a drug buy on the night of that mass murder, but he fell asleep and never made it over. Along with the victims, the alleged killers also lived in and or were very much a part of the Laurel Canyon scene. Bobby Cupid Beausoleil, for example, lived in a Laurel Canyon apartment during the early months of 1969. Charles Tex Watson, who allegedly led the death squad responsible for the carnage at Cielo Drive, lived for a time in a home on, guess where, Wonderland Avenue. During that time, curiously enough, Watson co-owned and worked in a wig shop in Beverly Hills, Crown Wig Creations Limited, that was located near the mouth of Benedict Canyon. Meanwhile, one of J. Sebring's primary claims to fame was his expertise in crafting men's hairpieces, which he did in his shop near the mouth of Laurel Canyon. A typical day then in the late 1960s would find Watson crafting hairpieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Benedict Canyon and then returning home to Laurel Canyon, while Sebring crafted hairpieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Laurel Canyon and then returned home to Benedict Canyon. And then, one crazy day, as we all know, one of them became a killer and the other his victim. But there's nothing odd about that, I suppose, so let's move on. Oh, wait a minute. We can't move on just yet. As I forgot to mention that Sebring's Benedict Canyon home at 9820 Easton Drive was a rather infamous Hollywood death house that had once belonged to Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne. The mismatched pair were wed on July 2, 1932, when Harlow, already a huge star of the silver screen, was just 21 years old. Just two months later, on September 5, Byrne caught a bullet to the head in his wife's bedroom. He was found sprawled naked in a pool of his own blood, his corpse drenched with his wife's perfume. Upon discovering the body, Byrne's butler promptly contacted MGM's head of security, Whitey Hendry, who in turn contacted Lewis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. All three men descended upon the Benedict Canyon home to, you know, tidy up a bit. A couple hours later, they decided to contact the LAPD. This scene would be repeated years later, when Sebring's friends would rush uh-huh. to the very same home to clean up before officers investigating the Tate murders arrived. Byrne's death was, as is so often the case, written off as a suicide. His newlywed wife, strangely enough, was never called as a witness at the inquest. Burns' other wife, which is to say his common-law wife, Dorothy Millett, reportedly boarded a Sacramento riverboat on September 6, 1932, the day after Paul's death. She was next seen floating belly up in the Sacramento River her death as would be expected was also ruled a suicide less than five years later harlow herself dropped dead at the ripe old age of twenty-six at the time authorities opted not to divulge the cause of death though it was later claimed that bad kidneys had done her in during her brief stay on this planet harlow had cycled through three turbulent marriages and yet still found time to serve as godmother to Bugsy Siegel's daughter, Millicent. Though Burns was the most famous body to be hauled out of the Easton Drive house in a coroner's bag, it certainly wasn't the only one. Another man had reportedly committed suicide there as well, in some unspecified fashion. Yet another unfortunate soul drowned in the home's pool and a maid was once found swinging from the end of a rope. Her death, needless to say, was ruled a suicide as well. That's a lot of blood for one home to absorb, but the house's morbid history, though a turnoff to many prospective residents, was reportedly exactly what attracted J. Sebring to the property. His murder would further darken the black cloud hanging over the home. As Laurel Canyon chronicler Michael Walker has noted, L.A.'s two most notorious mass murders, one in August of 1969 and the other in July of 1981, both involving five victims, though at Wonderland one of the five miraculously survived, provided rather morbid bookends for Laurel Canyon's glory years. Walker, though, like others who have chronicled that time and place, treats these brutal crimes as though they were unfortunate aberrations. The reality, however, is that the nine bodies recovered from Cielo Drive and Wonderland Avenue constitute just the tip of a very large and very bloody iceberg. To partially illustrate that point, Diane Linkletter, daughter of famed entertainer Art Linkletter, legendary comedian Lenny Bruce, screen idol Sal Mineo, starlet Inger Stevens, and silent film star Ramon Navarro, all have something in common. All were found dead in their homes, either in or at the mouth of Laurel Canyon in the decade between 1966 and 1976. And all five were, in all likelihood, murdered in those Laurel Canyon homes. Only two of them are officially listed as murder victims, Minio, who was stabbed to death outside his home at 8563 Holloway Drive on February 12, 1976, and Navarro, who was killed near the country store in a decidedly ritualistic fashion on the eve of Halloween, 1968. Inger Stevens' death in her home at 8000 Woodrow Wilson Drive on April 30, 1970, Volpurgisnacht. On the occult calendar, was officially a suicide, though why she opted to propel herself through a decorative glass screen as part of that suicide remains a mystery. Perhaps she just wanted to leave behind a gruesome crime scene, and simple overdoses can be so, you know, bloodless and boring. Diane Linkletter, according to legend, sailed out the window of her Shoreham Towers apartment because, in her LSD addled state, she thought she could fly. We know this because Art himself told us that it was so, and because the story was retold throughout the 1970s as a cautionary tale about the dangers of drugs. What we weren't told, however, is that Diane, born curiously enough on Halloween Day 1948, wasn't alone when she plunged six stories to her death on the morning of October 4, 1969, au contraire, she was with a gent by the name of Edward Durston, who in a completely unexpected turn of events accompanied actress Carol Wayne to Mexico some fifteen years later. Carol, alas, perhaps weighed down by her enormous breasts, managed to drown in barely a foot of water while Mr. Durston promptly disappeared. As would be expected, he was never questioned by authorities about Wayne's curious death. After all, it is quite common for the same guy to be the sole witness to two separate accidental deaths. Art also neglected to mention that just weeks before Diane's curious death, another member of the Linkletter clan, Art's son-in-law, John Zwyer, caught a bullet to the head in the backyard of his Hollywood Hills home. But that, of course, was an unconnected suicide. I'm not even going to discuss here the circumstances of Lenny Bruce's death from acute morphine poisoning on August 3, 1966. Because, to be perfectly honest, I don't know too many people who don't already assume that Lenny was whacked. I'll just note here that his funeral was well attended by the Laurel Canyon rock icons, and control over his unreleased material fell into the hands of a guy by the name of... Frank Zappa, and another unsavory character named Phil Spector, whose crack team of studio musicians, dubbed the Wrecking Crew, were the actual musicians playing on many studio recordings by such Laurel Canyon bands as the Monkeys, the Birds, the Beach Boys, and the Mamas and the Papas. Chapter 3 dig the Laurel Canyon death list. I mean, fuck, he auditioned for Neil Young, for fuck's sake. Graham Nash, explaining to author Michael Walker how close Charles Manson was to the Laurel Canyon scene. During the ten-year period during which Lenny Bruce, Ramon Navarro, Sal Minio, Diane Linkletter, Inger Stevens, Sharon Tate, J. C. Bring, Wojtek Fukowski, and Abigail Folger all turned up dead. Numerous other people connected to Laurel Canyon did as well, often under very questionable circumstances. The list includes but is certainly not limited to all of the following names. Marina Elizabeth Habe, whose body was carved up and tossed into the heavy brush along Mulholland Drive, just west of Beaumont Drive, on December 30, 1968. Habe, just 17 at the time of her death, was the daughter of Hans Habe, who emigrated to the U.S. from fascist Austria circa 1940. Shortly thereafter, Hans married a general foods heiress, and began studying psychological warfare at the Military Intelligence Training Center. After completing his training, he put his psychological warfare skills to use by creating 18 newspapers in occupied Germany under the direction, no doubt, of the OSS. Christine Hinton, who was killed in a head-on collision on September 30, 1969... At the time Hinton was a girlfriend of David Crosby and the founder and head of the Birds Fan Club. She was also the daughter of a career army officer stationed at the notorious Presidio Military Base in San Francisco. Another of Crosby's girlfriends from that same era was Shelley Roker, who grew up on the Hamilton Air Force Base in Marin County. Jane Doe number fifty nine found dumped into the heavy undergrowth of Laurel Canyon in November 1969, within sight of where Habe had been dumped less than a year earlier. The teenage girl, who was never identified, had been stabbed 157 times in the chest and throat. Alan Blind Owl Wilson, singer, songwriter, and guitarist for the Laurel Canyon blues rock band Canned Heat, was found dead in his Topanga Canyon home on September 3, 1970. His death was written off as a suicide O.D. Wilson had moved to Topanga Canyon after the band's Laurel Canyon home on Lookout Mountain Avenue, next door to Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash's home, burned to the ground. Blind Owl was just 27 years old at the time of his death. A little more than a decade later, Wilson's former bandmate Bob the Bear Height, who had once acknowledged in an interview that he had partied in the canyons with various members of the Manson family, died of a heart attack at the ripe old age of 36. Jimi Hendrix, who reportedly briefly occupied the sprawling mansion just north of the log cabin after he moved to L.A. in 1968, died in London under seriously questionable circumstances, on September 18, 1970. Though he rarely spoke of it, Jimmy had served a stint in the U.S. Army with the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. His official records indicate that he was forced into the service by the courts and then released after just one year when he purportedly proved to be a poor soldier. One wonders, though, why he was assigned to such an elite division if he was indeed such a failure. One also wonders why he wasn't subjected to disciplinary measures rather than being handed a free pass out of his ostensibly court-ordered service. In any event, Jimmy himself once told reporters that he was given a medical discharge after breaking an ankle during a parachute jump. One biographer has claimed that Jimmy faked being gay to earn an early release. The truth, alas, remains rather elusive. At the time of Jimmy's death, the first person called by his girlfriend, Monica Daneman, last to see Hendricks alive, was Eric Burden of the Animals. Two years earlier, Burden had relocated to L.A. and taken over ringmaster duties from Frank Zappa after Zappa had vacated the log cabin and moved into a less high-profile Laurel Canyon home. Within a year of Jimmy's death, a reported prostitute-turned-groupie named Devin Wilson, who had been with Jimmy the day before his death, plunged from an eighth-floor window of New York's Chelsea Hotel. On March 5, 1973, a shadowy character named Michael Jeffrey, who had managed both Hendrix and Burden, was killed in a mid-air plane collision Jeffrey was known to openly boast of having organized crime connections and of working for the CIA. After Jimmy's death, it was discovered that Jeffrey had been funneling most of Hendricks's gross earnings into offshore accounts in the Bahamas linked to international drug trafficking. Years later, on April 5, 1996, Dannemann, the daughter of a wealthy German industrialist, was found dead near her home in a fume-filled Mercedes. Jim Morrison, who for a time lived in a home on Rothdell Trail, behind the Laurel Canyon Country Store, may or may not have died in Paris on July 3, 1971. The events of that day remain shrouded in mystery and rumor, and the details of the story, such as they are, have changed over the years. What is known is that on that very same day, Admiral George Stephen Morrison delivered the keynote speech at a decommissioning ceremony for the aircraft carrier USS Bonham-Richard, from where seven years earlier he had helped choreograph the Tonkin Gulf incident. A few years after Jim's death, his common-law wife, Pamela Corson, dropped dead as well, officially of a heroin overdose. Like Hendrick's, Morrison had been an avid student of the occult, with a particular fondness for the work of Alistair Crowley. According to supergroupie Pamela Debar, he had also read all he could about incest and sadism. Also like Hendricks and Wilson, Morrison was just 27 at the time of his possible death. Brandon DeWilde, a good friend of David Crosby and Graham Parsons, was killed in a freak accident in Colorado on July 6, 1972, when his van plowed under a flatbed truck. In the 1950s, DeWild had been an in-demand child actor since the age of eight. He had appeared on screen with some of the biggest names in Hollywood, including Alan Ladd, Lee Marvin, Paul Newman, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, and Henry Fonda. Around 1965, DeWild fell in with Hollywood's Young Turks, through whom he met and befriended Crosby, Parsons, and various other members of the Laurel Canyon Club. DeWild was just 30 at the time of his death. Christine Furka, a former governess for Moon Unit Zappa and the Zappa family's former housekeeper at the log cabin died on November 5, 1972, of an alleged drug overdose. Though friends suspected foul play. As Miss Christine, Furka had been a member of the Zappa-created GTOs, a musical act of sorts composed entirely of very young groupies. She was also the inspiration for the song Christine's Tune, Devil in Disguise, by Graham Parsons' Flying Burrito Brothers. Furka may have been in her early 20s when she died, possibly even younger. Danny Witten, a guitarist, vocalist, songwriter with Neil Young's sometimes band Crazy Horse, died of an overdose on November 18, 1972. According to rock and roll legend, Witten had been fired by Young earlier that day during rehearsals in San Francisco. Young and Jack Nietzsche, Phil Spector's former top assistant, had given Witten $50 and put him on a plane back to L.A. Within hours, he was dead. Witten was just 29. Bruce Barry, a roadie for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, died of a heroin overdose in June 1973. Barry had just flown out to Maui to deliver a shipment of cocaine to Stephen Stills, and was promptly sent back to L.A. by Crosby and Nash. Barry was a brother of Jan Barry, of Jan and Dean. Dean Torrance, the dean of Jan and Dean, had played a part in the fake kidnapping of Frank Sinatra, Jr., just a couple weeks after the JFK assassination. The staged event was a particularly transparent effort to divert attention away from the questions that were cropping up after the initial shock had passed, about the events in Dealey Plaza. Clarence White, a guitarist who had played with the birds, was run over by a drunk driver and killed on July 14, 1973. White had grown up near Lancaster, not far from where Frank Zappa spent his teen years. At least one member of White's immediate family was employed at Edwards Air Force Base, the driver who killed young Clarence, just 29 years old at the time of his death, was given a one year suspended sentence and served no time. Graham Parsons, formerly with the International Submarine Band, the Birds, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, allegedly overdosed on a speedball at the Joshua Tree Inn on September 19, 1973. Just two months before his death, Parsons' Topanga Canyon home had burnt to the ground. After his death, his body was stolen from LAX by the Burrito's road manager, Phil Kaufman, and then taken back out to Joshua Tree and ritually burned on the autumnal equinox. Kaufman had been a prison buddy of Charlie Manson's at Terminal Island. When Phil was released from Terminal Island in March of 1968, He quickly reunited with his old pal who had been released a year earlier by the time of graham's death his family had already experienced its share of questionable deaths just before christmas 1958 parsons father had sent graham along with his mother and sister off to stay with family in florida the next day just after the winter solstice ingram cecil connor jr caught a bullet to the head His death was recorded as a suicide, and it was claimed that he had sent his family away to spare them as much pain as possible. (laughs) It seems just as likely, however, that Cecil knew his days were numbered and wanted to get his family out of the line of fire. The next year, 1959, Graham's mother married again to Robert Ellis Parsons, who adopted Graham and his sister, Avis. Six years later, in June of 1965, Graham's mother died the day after a sudden illness landed her in the hospital. According to witnesses, she died almost immediately after a visit from her husband, Robert Parsons. Many of those close to the situation believed that Parsons had a hand in her death. Very shortly thereafter, Robert Parsons married his stepdaughter's teenage babysitter. Following his mother's death, Parsons briefly attended Harvard University and then launched his music career with the formation of the International Submarine Band, which quickly found its way to, where else, Laurel Canyon. Graham's death in 1973 at the age of 26 left his younger sister Avis as the sole surviving member of the family. She was killed in 1993, reportedly in a boating accident okay. at the age of 40. Mama you know, Cass Elliot, the, Elliott, central the central earth, central earth central mother central of Laurel central Canyon, central whose central circle of friends included musicians, Mansonites, young Hollywood things. stars, the wealthy son of a State Department official, singer-songwriters, assorted drug dealers, and some particularly unsavory characters the LAPD once described as some kind of hit squad, died in the London home of Harry Nilsson on July 29, 1974. Nilsen had been a frequent drinking buddy of John Lennon in Laurel Canyon and on the Sunset Strip. At 32, Cass had lived a long and productive life by Laurel Canyon standards. Four years later, in the very same room of the very same London flat, still owned by Harry Nilsson. Keith Moon of The Who also died at age 32 on September 7, 1978. Though initial press reports held that Cass had choked to death on a ham sandwich, the official verdict was heart failure. Her actual cause of death could likely be filed under knowing where too many of the bodies were buried. Moon reportedly died from a massive overdose of a drug used to treat alcohol withdrawal. Amy Gossage, Graham Nash's girlfriend, was murdered in her San Francisco home on February 13, 1975. Just 20 years old at the time, she had been stabbed nearly 50 times and was bludgeoned beyond recognition. Amy's father, a famed advertising PR executive, had died of leukemia in 1969. Not long after, her half-sister had been killed in a car crash. In May of 1974, her mother, the daughter of a wealthy banking family, died as well, reportedly of cirrhosis of the liver. That left just Amy, age 19, and her brother, Eben, age 20, both of whom reportedly had serious drug dependencies. Amy's brutal murder, cleverly enough, was pinned on Eben. Police had conveniently found blood-stained clothes along with a hammer and scissors, sitting on the porch of Eben's apartment, looking very much as though it had been planted. A friend of Eben's would later remark, perhaps quite tellingly, if Eben did kill her, I'm convinced he doesn't know he did it. Tim Buckley, a singer-songwriter signed to Frank Zappa's record label and managed by Herb Cohen, died of a reported overdose on June 29, 1975. Buckley had once appeared on an episode of The Monkees, and, like Monkey Peter Tork, and so many others in this story, he hailed from Washington, D.C. He was the son of a mentally unbalanced and occasionally violent World War II hero. Buckley was just 28 at the time of his death, which reportedly shocked many of his friends and relatives. Despite having released nine albums during his short life, Buckley died in debt which probably had nothing to do with his management by Cohen. His son, Jeff Buckley, also an accomplished musician, managed to remain on this planet two years longer than his dad did. He was 30 when he died in a bizarre drowning incident on May 29, 1997. Phyllis Major Brown, wife of singer-songwriter Jackson Brown reportedly overdosed on barbiturates on March 25, 1976. Her death was, you should all know the words to this song by now, ruled a suicide. She was just 30 years old. There are a few other curious deaths we could add here as well, though they were more indirectly related to the Laurel Canyon scene. Nevertheless, they deserve an honorable mention. Bobby Fuller, singer, songwriter, guitarist for the Bobby Fuller Four, was found dead in his car near Grauman's Chinese Theater on July 18, 1966, after being lured away from his home by a mysterious 2 to 3 a.m. phone call of unknown origin. Fuller is best known for penning the hit song, I Fought the Law, which had just hit the charts, when he supposedly committed suicide at the age of twenty-three. There were multiple cuts and bruises on his face, chest, and shoulders, dried blood around his mouth, and a hairline fracture to his right hand. He had been thoroughly doused with gasoline, including in his mouth and throat. The inside of the car was doused as well, and an open book of matches lay on the seat. It was perfectly obvious that Fuller's killer, or killer's, had planned to torch the car, destroying all evidence, but likely got scared away. The LAPD nevertheless ruled Fuller's death a suicide, despite the coroner's conclusion that the gas had been poured after Bobby's death. Police later decided that it wasn't a suicide after all, but rather an accident. They didn't bother to explain how Fuller had accidentally doused himself with gasoline after accidentally killing himself. At the time of his death, one of Fuller's closest confidants was a prostitute named Melody who worked at P.J.'s nightclub, where Bobby frequently played. The club was co-owned by Eddie Nash, who would, many years later, orchestrate the Wonderland Massacre. A few years after Bobby's death, his brother and bass player, Randy Fuller, teamed up with drummer Dewey Martin, formerly of Buffalo Springfield. Gary Hinman, a musician, music teacher, and part-time chemist, was brutally murdered in his Topanga Canyon home on July 27, 1969. Convicted of his murder was Mansonite Bobby Beausoleil. Who had played rhythm guitar in a Laurel Canyon band known as the Grassroots, which later achieved a fair amount of fame under the name Love? Janice Joplin, vocalist extraordinaire, was found dead of a heroin overdose on October 4, 1970, at the Landmark Hotel, about a mile east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon, where she occasionally visited. Indications were that she had taken or been given a hot shot many times stronger than standard street heroine. Joplin's father, by the way, was a petroleum engineer for Texaco. And though it might normally seem an odd coupling, it somehow seems perfectly natural in the context of this story that Janice once dated that great crusader in the war on all things immoral, William Bennett. Like Morrison, Hendricks, and Wilson, Joplin died at the age of 27. Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley, lead guitarist and bass player for the Allman Brothers, were killed in freakishly similar motorcycle crashes on October 29, 1971 and November 11, 1972, respectively. Allman was the son of Willis Allman, a U.S. Army sergeant who had been murdered by another soldier near Norfolk, Virginia, home of the world's largest naval installation, on December 26, 1949. In 1967, Duane and his younger brother Greg, then billing themselves as the Allman Joys, ventured out to Los Angeles. While there, Greg auditioned for and was almost signed by the Laurel Canyon band Poco, which featured Buffalo Springfield alumni Richie furey and Jim Messina, as well as future Eagle, Randy Meisner. Dwayne was killed when a truck turned in front of his motorcycle at an intersection and inexplicably stopped. Just over a year later, Oakley had a similar run-in with a bus just three blocks from where Allman had been killed. Following the crash, Barry had dusted himself off and declined medical attention, insisting that he was okay. Three hours later, he was rushed to the hospital where he died, both Oakley and Dahlman were just 24 years old. Gary Thane, bassist for the band Uriah Heep, yet another group with a keen interest in magic and the occult, with album titles such as Demons and Wizards and Magician's Birthday, was found dead on December 8, 1975, five years to the day before Nilsen sidekick John Lennon would be gunned down at the Dakota Apartments in New York City thane had once played with sometime canyonite jimmy hendrix and his first live appearance with uriah heep was at the whisky-a-go-go on february one nineteen seventy two his death was alas attributed to a drug overdose thane is yet another member of the twenty seven club tommy Bolin, best known as a guitarist for the band deep purple was also found dead of a reported drug overdose almost exactly one year later, on December 4, 1976, though varying stories have surfaced concerning the circumstances of his death. Bolin had previously played for the James Gang in the position once filled by Joe Walsh, who, by the time of Bolin's death, had become a member of Laurel Canyon's most commercially successful band, The Eagles. Boland died a couple years shy of making the 27 Club. It wasn't only the musicians with ties to Laurel Canyon who died young and often under questionable and sometimes quite violent circumstances. The dark undercurrents pulsing through the canyons in the early 1970s that left such a trail of destruction extended well beyond the Hollywood Hills as illustrated by the deaths of a handful of mostly forgotten figures in the rock community. Phil King, an early frontman for the Blue Oyster Cult, a band whose album art and song lyrics suggested a keen interest in the occult, was shot three times in the back of the head in New York City on April 27, 1972, just three days shy of Walsh Three months later, on July 24, 1972, Bobby Ramirez, the drummer for an early formation featuring frontman Edgar Winter, was beaten and stabbed to death in a Chicago bar. He was 23 years old. Rory Storm, the founder and frontman for the U.K.'s Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, was found dead on September 28, 1972. Born Alan Caldwell on the autumnal equinox of 1939 in Liverpool, England, Storm had close ties to that other, far more famous band from Liverpool. The Hurricanes' original drummer was none other than Richie Starkey, who left the band to join John Paul and George, becoming Ringo Starr in the process. It is said that George Harrison, who dated Storm's younger sister, initially wanted to join the Hurricanes, but had to settle for the Quarrymen when he was deemed too young. That same sister would later date a young Paul McCartney. Popular on the Liverpool-Hamburg club circuit, the Hurricanes at times shared the stage with the Beatles, both before and after Starr's defection. Rory's band, though, which he initially wanted to name Dracula and the Werewolves, never caught fire the way the Beatles did. And by the late 1960s, early 1970s, Storm had to find work as a DJ, In Amsterdam at the time of his father's death in 1972, Rory returned to Liverpool to be with his grieving mother. On September 28, 1972, just one week after Rory's 33rd birthday, both mother and son turned up dead in the family home. In a rather unlikely turn of events, it was claimed that both had independently committed suicide on the same day in different rooms of the same house. Storm reportedly had sleeping pills in his system, but not in sufficient concentrations to have caused his demise, leaving the actual cause of death something of a mystery. Ronald Pigpen McKernan, a founding member of the Grateful Dead from its early incarnations as the Zodiacs and the Warlocks, died on March 8, 1973, A vocalist and multi-instrumentalist, McKernan had a short romantic relationship and a somewhat longer friendship with fellow death list member Janice Joplin. Pigpen was found dead at his home, reportedly of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. His death is primarily of interest because he was, like Joplin, 27 years old at the time, qualifying him for membership in the 27 club alongside charter members Joplin, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison, and more recent Hall of Famers such as Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse. Graham Bond, who was widely considered to be a founding father of the 1960s British R&B boom, was killed on May 5, 1974, when he was reportedly run over by a train at London's Finsbury Park Station. His death, to no one's surprise, was ruled a suicide. Bond, who was adopted and believed himself to be the biological son of occultist spy Alistair Crowley, had a deep fascination with the occult. He also reportedly struggled with what the psychiatric community refers to as a manic depressive disorder, which was aggravated by chronic drug abuse. Bond was just 36 years old at the time of his death. Pete Ham, a singer songwriter guitarist and the leader of the British band Badfinger, another outfit with close ties to those lads from Liverpool, was found swinging from the end of a rope on April 23, 1975. Ham's band was the first signed by the Beatles' own Apple label, and their first single, Come and Get It, was penned by Paul McCartney. According to rock lore, McCartney recorded the song himself, and then insisted that Ham's band play and record it exactly the same way. Sir Paul also personally auditioned all four members of Badfinger to decide who would provide the lead vocal on the single. Ham's greatest claim to fame, though, was being the co-writer of the off-recorded Without You, a song that became a monster hit around the world when it was committed to vinyl in 1972 by John Lennon's Sunset Strip Laurel Canyon sidekick, Harry Nilsson, the very same Harry Nilsson whose London flat served as the death scene for both Mama Cass and Keith Moon. The song received numerous awards, and Ham and his band moved over to Warner Brothers Records with the expectation that Badfinger... Was soon to become quite a sensation. It wasn't meant to be. Within a few years, Pete Ham was unemployed and turned up dead in his garage. Ham is yet another member of the 27 Club, though not by much. His death came just three days before his 28th birthday. His passing was barely reported on, due in part to the fact that neither Warner Brothers nor the Beatles organization bothered to make an announcement or issue any public comment. Just one month later, his girlfriend gave birth to a daughter that Ham was never to know. Eight and a half years later, on November 18, 1983, Tom Evans, Ham's former bandmate and the co-writer of Without You, was also found swinging from the end of a rope. Shit happens, it appears. Chapter 4. Related Lives and Relative Deaths No One Here Gets Out Alive. Jim Morrison Before moving on from the Laurel Canyon death list, there are a few more celebrity deaths that demand a closer inspection. The first is a truly tragic tale of a rising star in Laurel Canyon who, by the time of her death, had been completely forgotten. The second is the story of a man who had only tangential ties to Laurel Canyon, but whose life and death may provide one of the keys to understanding the canyon scene. And the third is the story of a guy who had no real connections to Laurel Canyon, but whose life arc has been so illuminatingly bizarre that it merits inclusion here. Judy Lynn Sill was born in Studio City, California, not far from the northern entrance to Laurel Canyon, on October 7, 1944. Almost a quarter century later, she would be favorably compared to such other Laurel Canyon singer-songwriters as Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins, and Carole King. When she died, though, on November 23, 1979, not a single obituary was published to note her passing. Judy's father, Milford Bud Sill, was reportedly a cameraman for Paramount Studios with numerous Hollywood connections. When Judy was still quite young, however, Bud moved the family to Oakland and opened a bar known as Bud's Bar. He also operated a side business as an importer of rare animals, which required him to spend a considerable amount of time traveling in Central and South America. Such a business, it should be noted, would provide an ideal cover for covert intelligence work. In any event, Bud Sill was dead by 1952, when Judy was just seven or eight years old. Depending on who is telling the story, Bud died either from pneumonia or a heart attack. Following Bud's death, the family relocated back to Southern California and Judy's older brother Dennis, though still in his teens, took over the family importing business. That career didn't last long, though, as Dennis soon turned up dead down in Central America, either from a liver infection or a car accident. The animal importing business, I guess, is a rather dangerous one. Following Bud's death, Judy's mother, Onita, met and married Ken Muse an Academy Award-winning animator for Hanna-Barbera, who is described by Judy as an abusive, violent alcoholic. At 15, Judy fled her violent home life and lived with an older man with whom she pulled off a series of armed robberies in the San Fernando Valley. Those activities landed her in reform school, which did little to curb her appetite for drugs, crime, and alcohol. She spent the next few years with a serious heroin addiction, which she financed by dealing drugs and turning tricks in some of L.A.'s seedier neighborhoods. By 1963, Judy had cleaned herself up enough to enroll in junior college. In the early winter of 1965, however, Judy's mom, her last surviving family member, died either of cancer or of complications arising from her chronic alcoholism. Take your pick. The details of the story will likely remain forever elusive. Barely an adult, Judy was left all alone in the world, and thus began another downward spiral into drugs and crime, which culminated in her being arrested and possibly serving time on forgery and drug charges. In the late 1960s, with her addictions apparently temporarily curbed, Sill joined the Laurel Canyon scene, where she attempted to forge a career as a singer-songwriter. Her first big break came when she sold the song Lady O to the Turtles, yet another Laurel Canyon band to hit it big in the mid-1960s. Best known for the hit single Happy Together, The Turtles were led by lead vocalist songwriter Howard Kalin, who happened to be, small world that it is, a cousin of Frank Zappa's manager and business partner, Herb Cohen. The band released the song, which featured Judy's guitar work, in 1969. The next year, Sill became the first artist signed to David Geffen's fledgling Asylum record label. The year after that, Her self-titled debut album became Asylum's first official release. The first single from the album, Jesus Was a Crossmaker, was produced by Graham Nash, whom she opened for on tour following the album's release. Though critically well-received, the album's sales were disappointing, in part because the record was overshadowed by the debut albums of Jackson Brown and The Eagles, both released by Asylum shortly after the release of Judy's album. Sill's second album, 1973's Heart Food, was even more of a commercial disappointment. Nevertheless, in 1974, she began work on a third album in Monkey Mike Nesmith's recording studio. Prior to completion, however, she abandoned the project and promptly disappeared without a trace. What became of her between that time and her death some five years later remains largely a mystery. It is assumed that she once again descended into a life of drugs and prostitution, but no one seems to know for sure. It is alleged that she was seriously injured when her car was rear-ended by actor Danny Kaye, causing her to suffer from chronic back pain thereafter, thus contributing to her drug addictions. According to a friend of hers, she lived in a home that featured an enormous photo of Bella Lugosi above the fireplace, a large ebony cross above her bed, and racks of candles. She is said to have read extensively from Rosicrucian manuscripts and from the writings of Alistair Crowley, to have possessed a complete collection of the work of Helena Blavatsky, and to have been a gifted tarot card reader. What is known for sure is that on the day after Thanksgiving, 1979, Judy Sill, the last surviving member of her family, was found dead in a North Hollywood apartment. The cause of death was listed as acute cocaine and codeine intoxication. It was claimed that a suicide note was found, but friends insisted that the supposed note was either a portion of a diary entry or an unfinished song. One of her friends would later note that, at some point in her life, Judy began to realize that there was a part of her that wasn't under her conscious control. I'm guessing that the guy up for review next could relate to that.